Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys here. Thanks for coming this morning. And if you're new with us, please do. Um, if you have like five or ten minutes after the service, please come hang out in the lobby. We're also going to have some elders um, in the hallway over here if you want to meet them over there. But uh, uh, we, we would love to get to know you. We're thankful you're here. Our desire is not just to have you come hear a message, but uh, to we want to make disciples. And we want to see you connected into the family of God here and help you however we can to do that. So please uh, let us know who you are. <clears throat> I want to start by reading the last words that Jesus Christ spoke uh, before he returned to heaven. He was um, speaking these to his followers in Matthew 28, 18, 20. says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. And then in Acts 1.8, Jesus adds, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus commanded his followers to go to all nations as his, as his witnesses. He tells them to spread the, the gospel message of my life and death and resurrection everywhere. And he, and he tells them here, not just to make converts, that's, that's part of the Christian walk, be converting to Christianity, but more than that, he says, make disciples. And this is how he tells us to make disciples. By first baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then second, by teaching them to observe all the rest of his commandments. And so disciples of Jesus are not merely people who say they are Christians. There are many people um, who would say they are Christians, but disciples of Jesus are people who are trusting in Jesus for salvation, first of all, and trusting him in their daily lives, and consequently who are resting in his finished work for them and who are daily fighting to kill their sin and to follow Jesus instead. And Jesus' command to go make disciples, uh, it wasn't just for those first believers that he talked to. Making disciples is Jesus' command for every generation of Christians until he comes back. And that's why our church purpose statement says, Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to glorify God by what? By making disciples through gospel-centered worship, community service, and multiplication. And so here at Cedar Home, we want to see Jesus transform lives. That's what we want to see. We want to make disciples for the glory of God. And the first disciples here who started making disciples, they lived in Jerusalem about, um, about around 30 AD. And the Holy Spirit filled them, and they spoke the gospel to their neighbors in Jerusalem, as we read about in Acts 2. And then they made more disciples of Jesus through uh, what we see in the New Testament commands and in their model through worship, uh, that is corporate worship together, and also learning what it means to worship God in their individual lives, and through intentional community, living a common shared life together, and through sacrificial service, and through intentional multiplication. 
Well, eventually what happened is, as they were preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, many people got sick and tired of hearing about Jesus. And the town leaders uh, led a massive persecution against the Christians, and Christian men and women and children were being tied up and dragged to court and condemned to death and killed. But many of those Christians also who, who were able to get out of Jerusalem escaped that persecution, and they spread out. They spread out to do this great commission that Jesus had given them to do. They spread out to Europe and the Middle East and to North Africa. And so even in the midst of this terrible time for Christians, God was working out his good plan. God was sovereignly using the persecution of Christians to scatter them throughout the world in order to make disciples of Jesus everywhere. And the passage of scripture we're going to read read today mentions many of the different places that the Christians fled to. And instead of just reading all these places, I, th- I want to look at a map to help us visualize this. And I know we have a lot of objects on stage which might hinder your ability to see, but I, uh, bear with me here. Whatever you can see, you see. If we can get that map on there. Okay. So, this is, and I got my cool pointer. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, this is Europe, Middle East, North Africa here. And this is not just some ancient unknown world. This exists today. Some of you have been there. But uh, down here is Jerusalem, um, and that is where these first Christians uh, were appointed by Jesus, just outside of Jerusalem. And this is where the Pentecost happened, where the Holy Spirit came upon them. They made disciples there. And then they fled, they persecuted, they went to Samaria. Samaritans were half Gentiles, half Jews, and that's where the Samaritan Pentecost happened, where the Holy Spirit filled them, many believers were made. And then, you remember last week, we were, or in recent weeks, we read about Caesarea, where the Gentile Pentecost happened as Peter and um, Cornelius met, and Cornelius' household came to Christ. And then also we're going to read here today that the... Christians had fled a lot farther than that, okay? They're, they fled all the way to this area of Phoenicia, which if you know ancient literature, the Phoenicians were known for being sailors. Um, up to Antioch, which we're gonna talk about today, that's where today's passage happens. Up to Tarsus, this is where Saul uh, was from, and this is where he was currently living after they tried to kill him in Jerusalem. He took a ship from here to about up here to Tarsus. Cyprus, this is this island here. This is where Barnabas was from. And then over here, get this, the Christians had gone all the way over here, Cyrene. Uh, We read about Simon of Cyrene when Jesus was being crucified. But then also we know that Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch had heard the gospel, and he probably went down here to present-day Sudan. But uh, anyways, the point is, all of a sudden, within a short amount of time, You have Christians scattering, and they're not just scattering, they're multiplying quickly. And and so anyways, you're going to read about some of these places, but I thought, since we don't normally look at maps like this, I want you to have it in your head so you can see it. So if you got your Bible, um, open up to Acts chapter 11, and we'll be in verse 19. And remember last week's passage, it was, we saw the uh, 
this group of Gentiles, non-Jews, um, saved. And, um, and that was kind of the first Gentile, big Gentile conversion we heard about. And then today we're going to go up to, either, we're going to read about Antioch, uh, where this movement with the Gentiles continues and just really expands. So uh, before we read this, let's ask the Lord to pray, uh, help us as we pray. God, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time you've given us together. Thank you that you care about us, God, uh, that you've revealed yourself to us in your word um, so that we can learn how to be in right relationship with you and so that we can hear the gospel and be transformed by the gospel um, by the power of the Holy Spirit into people who, who act and think and talk and look more like you, God. Um, we just thank you for breaking into our world. Thank you for breaking into our lives. Thank you for your grace that you show us. And uh, as we read your word, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move in a special way now. We just want to be, we want to be on fire for you, God. We want to be on fire um, and set ablaze by your love um, and with love for one another and with love for the lost. And so please do that in our hearts, Holy Spirit. Protect us from evil now. We pray that in Jesus' name. We pray all of this in Christ's name and for the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so let's, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to take a few, pass, a few verses at a time in, in this passage. Um, Let's start with verse 19 here. Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So some of the areas that the persecuted Christians fled to were the Phoenicians, that whole area up on the, the coast, that island country called Cyprus where Barnabas was from, and this great city called Antioch. And Antioch is where today's passage comes from uh, or, or, or takes place. Now, I want to get in your minds a little bit what Antioch was like. It was a big city. It was a very important city in the Roman Empire, which ruled the known world at that time, okay? There were three great cities in the Roman Empire. There was Rome in Italy. There was Alexandria in Egypt in North Africa. And then there was Antioch in the Middle East, okay? So Rome, and then across the Mediterranean Sea, Alexandria, and then over here in the Middle East, Antioch, kind of making one big triangle. And Antioch was known as the Queen of the East. That was the name of the city. And it was basically, this is the best way as I was reading about this, it was kind of like Seattle or Portland on steroids, okay? So like Seattle, it was located by the water, there were about the same amount of people there, about 500,000 people who lived there at this time, which was a massive city in the ancient world. Um, Pastor Tony Merida writes this about Antioch, that just to get an idea of the diversity of the people there, you had Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, Indians, and Asians, all populating this city, making it remarkably diverse. And it was very diverse, it was also very cultured, it had lots of, it had theaters, big theaters for entertainment. It had big sports arenas um, like Seattle that held um, Olympic style games. There were many religious temples where people worshiped uh, the Roman gods, most notice, notably in this city, there was the Greek gods and Roman gods, Artemis and Apollo, 
And Antioch, this was another key part of the city. Antioch was known for its sexual immorality. Uh, many people actually worshiped their false gods through prostitution and through offering their bodies up for many different kinds of sinful sexual acts. And so it was this metropolis that the Christians entered into. And verse 19 says that at first, as the Christians entered Antioch, they only spoke the word or the gospel to the Jews. And that's, that's simply because these Christians were, their background was Jewish, right? They were from the, the Jewish people. And so it makes sense that they would naturally go to the Jewish community. Um, you know, a lot of big cities have certain ethnicities living in certain t- types of towns. There was a large Jewish population in Antioch, so that's probably where they went. And uh, it was natural for them to begin by witnessing to the Jews. And also, the Christians in Antioch, they likely had not heard about everything that we heard about last week happening with Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. See, they, they, didn't, they didn't know probably about Peter's vision that God gave him um, to go associate with and be with the Gentiles. And they probably didn't know yet that God had commanded the Jews to eat the food of the Gentiles. And, and so in some ways, probably in Antioch, the Jews, Christian Jews were still separating themselves a bit in that way. So here's the question. How then, you've got all these different barriers, how then is the gospel going to spread to the Gentiles in Antioch, major city? Let's read in verse, verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Okay, stop there. So Antioch was a major city in the Roman Empire, and what do people do with major cities? <laughs> you go to those cities, right? That's why we have airports and big cities. That's why, um, that's why universities are in big cities. People flock from all over the world to go to big cities. And so we read here about these Christians who had traveled to Antioch from that island of Cyprus, but get this, even from Cyrene, which is that country in North Africa, a long ways away. And it was these Christians, the ones from Cyprus and the ones from Cyrene, who were bold enough to be cross-cultural and to speak the gospel to the Hellenists there. Okay, these Hellenists, these are the, the Greeks. These are the Gentiles. These are not the same Hellenists that had persecuted Stephen and Saul in Jerusalem that we read about earlier. Um, Here in Antioch, these were Greek-speaking Gentiles. They were pagans. And these Hellenists were the ones who were deeply entrenched in in sexual immorality, in false idol worship, in great, as far as like, I mean, you're talking about a great um, history of Socrates and Plato and wisdom of the world, right? And then you've got the foolishness of the gospel coming into that environment. And what was the message, it says, that the Christians from Cyprus and from Cyrene preached to the Hellenists? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. So it's not, it's, right, that's, that's pretty simple. <laughs> They preached the Lord Jesus. So what this tells us, though, about this is even at this point, the, the subject of the gospel message is, and we must keep it as, about Jesus. Okay? It's about who he is, and it's about what he's done. 
Why is that important? Because we tend to make our lives about us really quickly, right? Our lives and the message of the gospel is not about us. It's about who God is and about what he's done and it's about his glory primarily. And so the reason that the gospel message specifically is about Jesus and not us is because you and I have not done one little thing that contributes to our eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. We who believe the gospel of Jesus, we, what are we? We're recipients of grace. So we are. We're recipients of grace, and we are simply believers and trusters in this gospel. So to, uh, to put it another way here, this is, let's, let's, say, let's talk about what they didn't say. What could they have said to try to reach the Hellenists for Jesus? Well, they didn't say this. Jesus loves you so much, you guys. So follow his example, and you will be saved. Now, if they had preached that, then the Hellenists would have thought, okay, so if I work hard to be like Jesus, then I'll be saved. And that's not the gospel message. And neither did these Christians preach to the Hellenists, God loves you right now in the midst of all of your sexual sin, in the midst of all your rebellion against him, and he requires nothing of you to be his disciple. It's totally unconditional. So just believe that God loves you and then pick and choose whatever commandments he said that you want to follow and, and uh, you'll be saved. If, the, if, if, if they had preached this to the Hellenists, then the Hellenists would not believe in sin. <laughs> they wouldn't see that they need a savior to, be, to save them from their sin. So hear me right. Yes, tell non-Christians that God loves them, but do not lie to them and tell them that he accepts them while they are rebelling against God. The gospel that the Christians preached to the Hellenists was simply the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. Okay, this is, <clears throat> we have to get this because maybe in our history as Americans, we don't understand this quite as, we see it from a different perspective. At least we have some Judeo-Christian background where monotheism is kind of our history, even though now we kind of live in a post-Christian society, they're coming from a society where polytheism was their foundation, right? And he's saying, they're saying this, there's one God, and his name is Jesus. And the good news is about him and what he's done for us. And he's the only God who exists. He's your creator who loves you, who made you to bring glory to him. And his name is Jesus. He took on human flesh. He came from heaven and he took on human flesh. And he lived a perfect life unlike anybody has ever lived. And he wasn't sinful. And he wasn't rebellious against God. Even though it says he was tempted by sin, he was tempted to do evil. But he never worshipped false gods. And he never used his body in sexually immoral ways. He, he stayed pure. And then Jesus laid down his pure self on a cross to be killed as the sacrifice that it would absorb God's wrath towards your impurity, towards your rebellion. Because that's what sin does. Sin earns God's wrath. Sin earns death. But God the Son became our sin, and he suffered for all of God's wrath toward our sin when he was crucified outside of Jerusalem not long ago. And three days later, Jesus rose. We saw him. He rose up in glory. 
And he proved that he is God and that everybody who's united to him gets what he gets, is, is just before God. That means you're declared not guilty of sin before God. This is what it means that they were preaching that Jesus is Lord. So listen, listen closely here. Because while we preach the gospel, this is one thing I want to be really clear. There's such a fine line when you preach the gospel. Yes, we're not saved by works. Of course not. And at the same time, the evidence that you're saved is good works. And so what you shouldn't hear is this. Well, I'm saved, so that means I can do whatever I want. So that means I don't have to obey Jesus' commands because it, 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 it doesn't add to my salvation. This, this is what the Bible says. If you live in unrepentant sin, or if you make a practice of sinning after having accepted Christ, there's no evidence that your faith is genuine. <laughs> there's no evidence. Like, faith without works is, is dead. And so... We do not put our faith in our works. We put our faith in Jesus. Yet, the Holy Spirit in us over time should be producing hearts that want Jesus more and hearts that want to bring glory to Jesus in our lives. And that sanctification process looks different in different people's lives. Some people, it's slower than others. Some people, it's fast. Some people, it's radical in one area real quickly. And other people, they struggle with the same sin for 20 years. The big question is, even when you're sinning, even when you're caught in the trenches, are you continuing to repent from that sin? Or is it kind of like, this is what Jesus died for me for, so I could pursue this? See, we don't stop giving our time and energy and money to false gods and to selfish activities in order to be saved. We stop giving our time, energy, and money to false gods and to selfish activities because Jesus has saved us. And we don't obey Jesus' command to be baptized and make disciples of others in order to be saved. We obey Jesus' command to be baptized and make disciples of others because Jesus has saved us. And we want to do what he says because our obedience to God brings him glory and it brings us joy. We don't see, this is like, this is why salvation is the work of God. It is the work of God taking a person's heart of stone out and putting in a new heart of flesh by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean you don't have lust. It doesn't mean you don't have sin anymore. But there's a desire now to fight it. And there's power to fight it in the Spirit. See, we don't fight against, you think about all the sexual sins in our society. It's not different than what Antioch was going through. We, we don't fight against lust and pornography and prostitution and extramarital affairs and orgies and every form of sexual sin in order to be acceptable by God, to God. We fight against all these temptations because Jesus died for us and he made us born again. He filled us with the Holy Spirit we want to walk in step with the Holy Spirit now to bear fruit that produces life because we're sick of bearing fruit that produces death. And when we speak the gospel to others, and when we preach that Jesus is Lord, this is one thing that we can be encouraged about. God always works through our words to accomplish his purposes if what we're speaking is his word. 
That's why as a Christian, like, you think about, I, I don't know how to witness to others. I don't know what to do. It's like, this is what I do. Like when people, uh, sometimes I'll get people, you know, come, well, what do you think about this issue or this issue or this issue? I'll say, well, it doesn't really matter what I think. I hope my thoughts would align with scripture. And so let's just open the Bible and see what God thinks. That's what we do. We see what God thinks. And so we want to give people God's word, not, not our human wisdom. Listen to this. God says this in Isaiah 55, 10 to 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What that means is that whenever we speak God's word to others, God always uses it. It's a living word activated by the Holy Spirit. He uses it in the lives of its hearers even when it appears that our words have no effect on its hearers. This is the confidence I have in preaching. This is what changed the game of preaching for me. Not the game, sorry. What I mean is this. Um, I, it changed the game in a sense, right, that phrase, but I used to get very anxious before preaching. Like, if you were here when I was first here, there were several Sundays where I was in the back and I, I was deathly afraid. Like, I was ready, I had my transcript ready to hand off to somebody else to read because it was so panicky, so freaking out, so much pressure on me to perform. And now I know it's not about me at all. My only job, our only job, is to say God's words and to pray that God would work through his words. That's the confidence, that if I come up here and I tell you what God says, hopefully, he's gonna do the work. That takes, a, that takes everything off of us. <laughs> Because it's, it's all about Jesus and his word. I, when I was in seminary, I, um, I devoted every Sunday night for two years into discipling six to ten teenagers in Littleton, Colorado. And some of them were Christians, I think, and some weren't. And some of them were interested in Jesus, and some weren't. And this was a humbling experience for me because I, experience for me because I had just finished this youth group in Laramie where I had 80 to 90 kids every night and now I'm working with a group of 6 to 10 but I didn't do it because of the numbers I did it because this is a great opportunity to minister right to people but there were many nights after meeting with these 6 to 10 kids that I felt that all of my spent energy and Bible study efforts and gospel speaking to them had zero impact and I remember as I drove home from those meetings, and I think what kept me in ministry at that point, many nights I had to cling to the promise of God from Isaiah 55 that, the God, that God's word always accomplishes his purpose and will not return to him empty. God's word always succeeds in the thing for which he sends it. So I would say that may that be an encouragement to you as you share the gospel and as you share God's word to your own children and to your grandchildren and to the people that you're discipling and to the non-Christians you encounter and pray, pray, pray that God would use his word through you, that your, uh, your spirit-filled gospel-speaking efforts for the Lord are never in vain. 
and they always succeed in accomplishing God's sovereign purpose. So thank you to Sunday school teachers and to children's ministry volunteers and to the youth staff and to the Bible study leaders in our church and to those of you who are intentionally discipling others and witnessing to others. Please continue to speak the gospel with love because God is working through his word to impact the eternities of your hearers. What a, what a privilege to be people who speak God's word in the trenches to other people. <laughs> That's how he grows his church, by the power of the Spirit. Well, when the Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene did this, when they spoke the gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch, the Holy Spirit in that, circ- that situation moved in a, um, a powerful unusual way. We don't always see this. It doesn't always happen. But verse 21 says, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A great number. So the hand of the Lord is a phrase used used throughout the Bible kind of to describe God's power in action that brings about his will. And so here, God's power was with these Christians as they shared the gospel of Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit brings about his will by causing a, quote, great number of Gentiles to believe their message and to turn to the Lord. And the way that Luke, the writer, describes this conversion here, it's interesting. He he could have just written that a great number believed, right? But he actually says more than that. He says a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And just like we talked about earlier, being a disciple of Jesus is not merely being a person who says he or she believes, but it's a person who believes Jesus and who by the power of the Holy Spirit is consequently turning away from this world and sin and turning to Jesus in faith to become more like him. And this is, it kind of expresses the idea behind the word repentance, which means turning. We're turning away from our old ways and we're turning to the Lord and trusting in him alone. And and praise God, what we're reading here is that upon hearing the gospel of Jesus preached, a great number of these Gentiles trusted in Jesus and they turned to him. That's what it's saying. They turned to the Lord. And so they, they can't turn to their sin at the same time as being turned to the Lord. And so what this means is they were turning away from their former gods. And they were turning away from their sexual activities that did not align with God's instructions for their sexuality. And it doesn't mean they totally mastered their sin in that moment. It does mean that they resolved to start fighting against their sin because the Holy Spirit was in them. And by the power of the Spirit they began to get victory over their sin. And as they put their sin to death, they were trusting in Jesus as their sin bearer on the cross and as their righteousness giver. That's what we do. Get that? When we're fighting sin, our hope is not in how how strong I am. My my hope is in Jesus who already bore my sin and, and my guilt and in the power of his Holy Spirit who's working in me to change the desires of my heart. And one step at a time, this world and the brokenness and, and fruit of death and destruction that I used to pur- pursue, 
they become less and less appealing to me. I don't want that stuff anymore. It doesn't mean I'm free from temptation. It doesn't mean that, but you know how, that, you know how Satan works, man. I, hope, I mean, some of you, I mean, if you're tracking with me, he covers lollipops with poison. He can't, he's out to kill and destroy. And once you've been destroyed in your life and you're lucky you're not killed, you decide, man, I don't know if I want those lollipops anymore. By God's grace, I want Jesus. And very quickly it says, what does it say? It says God's doing a revival here in Antioch. This is a big city. Think about this. It says a great number of people in Antioch. So if there were a great number of people in Seattle who came to Christ immediately, can you imagine how it changed the city real fast in this whole region? This is what's happening in Antioch, okay? In Antioch, a couple, if you were to look at Antioch a couple centuries later, it's one of the headquarters for the Christian church. It's huge. And, and what happens is, because this is a huge center in the Roman world, words distributes throughout the land very fast about what's happening in Antioch. And this was huge news. And verses 22 to 24 say, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So word about these Antioch Christians reached Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem, which had been kind of the, the mother church, sent Barnabas to Antioch to see what was going on. Now, Barnabas is a key figure in this book. We, let's review who he was. Barnabas came from that big island in the Mediterranean Sea known as Cyprus, but he was living in Jerusalem with the Christians there. And remember that Barnabas was not his real name. His real name was Joseph. But the apostles nicknamed, nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because he was a great encourager, and he was a great encouragement to the apostles and to the early church. And he had, he had sold a piece of property and given proceeds to the church, uh, he was apparently an encouragement to the Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, Barnabas was the one who advocated for Saul, the apostle Paul, when the Christians in Jerusalem were really hesitant of accepting Saul into their fellowship. Barnabas advocated for him. And now in verse 24, the writer Luke says that this, he says, Barnabas was a good man. I was talking, I was trying to break this down and I, I, w I read some commentaries about just this little phrase, this good man. If you think about it, <clears throat> if you think about like what we read last week about the, the state of the depravity of humanity and how we're all made in the image of God, but we're all sinful in, in all of our different faculties. For the Bible to affirm, for God to say, this was a good man. That's about the greatest compliment you could ever get in scripture. This was a good man. And it says that... Uh, he was a good man. What else does it say here? He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of faith. So he had a servant's heart. He had a pure heart. He loved the Lord. The Holy Spirit filled Barnabas with unusual power and unusual faith. And he used his gifts to encourage the church. Well, when Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he saw what was happening, and it says that, what was his response? 
he was so glad. He was glad to see how God was working among them. And he looked at this new Christian community, this new thing God was doing in Antioch, and it says he saw something. What did he see? The grace of God. He looked at them and saw the grace of God at work. He saw a bunch of diverse people worshiping together who had turned from polytheism and from all these pagan rituals. He saw these people devoting themselves to the gospel and to loving one another as Christ had loved them. This was not the work of man. This was the grace of God that he was seeing. And it says he was glad. This is a really good lesson for us, okay? How often do we pause and take time to recognize what God is doing in our lives and to thank him for the evidences of grace in our lives? This is a great thing to do around the dinner table with your family every now and then or with your community group or with the ministry team you're serving with or leading. This is something I've done with different teams I've, I've, I've led is just sitting down and say, starting a meeting by saying, guys, what are the evidences of God's grace we've seen since the last time we met? That's a fun way to start a meeting. And it's a fun thing to do with your family because, you know, if... <laughs> One of the lessons the Old Testament teaches us is we're very quick to forget God. <laughs> we're very quick to forget him and everything he's done for us. And so we want to remember, what are the evidences of God's grace in our lives right now? It's really healthy, especially, especially in hard times we're going through, right? It is, it's healthy to know, well, even in this storm, what are some of the ways God is showing us grace right now? And when we do that, it helps us to see how he has helped us. It helps us to have more thankful hearts. And it helps us to actually rejoice and be glad at what he's doing and what he's done. And so may God help, because that's, that's one of the things Paul says a lot, rejoice, right? Again, I will say it, rejoice. And so God, we have to kind of, that's not something that for all of us comes naturally. We have to think about that and ask God to give us joy and to help us see his grace in our lives and in the lives of other people. Well, after seeing the grace of God in these Antioch Christians and being glad at what he saw, Barnabas then did what he was best at, encouraging the church. And it says he exhorted, or he, which means encouraged, he encouraged them to what? To stay faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He told them, what God is doing in and through you guys, Antioch Christians, is a wonderful thing. So keep it up, he's saying. Stay faithful to the Lord. Stay faithful with steadfast purpose. In other words, as a, as a local church, stay faithful to Jesus by dedicating yourself to the purpose God has, for the reason God has made you a local church, to glorify the Lord by making disciples as you love one another and as you worship together and as you fellowship together and serve together and as you make more disciples together. What, what these new Christians needed in Antioch is they needed at this point encouragement from a mature Christian, kind of a pastor figure, and that's what they got in Barnabas. They got pastoral encouragement to keep running the race of faith together. That's what he did for them. You guys, let's be encouragers of one another. 
Let's encourage one another by pointing out the evidences of grace we see in each other's lives. Let's encourage one another by encouraging each other to persevere and to keep running the race even when we're tired. I'm not that old, but the longer I live, the more junk that you see in the news, the more stuff you see in people's lives just doing ministry and living, it's, the more miraculous it is that, and obvious it is that perseverance in the Christian's life is a grace of God. That people stay Christians is, is the fact that the Holy Spirit's in them, right? Stay Christians, whatever that means. What I mean is that their faith is genuine. Um, and so what I say is, let's just encourage one another by, by helping one another when we're exhausted and using our words to build each other up and not to tear each other down. I don't know anybody, Christian or non-Christian, who has too much encouragement in their life, right? This was a, a little phrase that I learned a long time ago, but a pastor I really looked up to, he would always say this. He was very gentle, he was kind. He was the first pastor, I remember this. I went to his church in Denver when I was in grade school and I'd never seen anybody do this before. He hugged every person who came through the door. I was like, this is kind of weird. What's he doing? He was also the first guy I ever saw use a movie clip in a sermon. It was from E.T. Um, <laughs> but uh, he would say this, he said this, always be kind because everyone is fighting a battle. It's so true. Always be kind because everyone is fighting a battle. We don't see each other's battles all the, all the time, but it's just true, but we need to be encouragers of one another. Um, and it says here that as Barnabas encouraged the Antioch church to remain faithful to the Lord and to his purpose for their church, uh, verse 24, it says, another great many people were added to the Lord. Okay? So the Holy Spirit's ministry through Barnabas now to the church in Antioch it was kind of like fuel on the fire of what was already happening in Antioch. And a great many more people trusted in Jesus and began to follow his teaching. This was, this was a revival. This was the work of the Spirit. Um, and it says, in fact, so many people were becoming Christians that Barnabas saw the need for more help <laughs> to disciple all these people and to equip them for life and for service and for making more disciples. So in verse 25 to 27, it says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Antioch, remember, it was about 100 miles from Tarsus where Saul had fled after he was almost killed in Jerusalem. And now Barnabas, he go, he's like, you guys in Antioch, just, you know, Hold the fort down. I'll, I'll be back. I got to go get Saul. And so they go, he goes and finds Saul in Tarsus. He brings him back. They spend in a year discipling people, dedicating themselves to these new Christians. They, they met with them. They probably lived with them. They, they taught them what it means to follow Jesus as individuals and as a church family. And it was there in Antioch that non-Christians named Jesus' followers Christians. And that means the Christ people, Christians. Because it was obvious now, there's not, there weren't just two categories. They're, they're not Jews, 
But they're not Gentiles. There's something different. They're Christians. So they had to make a new category for them. These are the Christ people. And uh, we read of, uh, well, let me see. What Luke does here is he writes, he, he wraps up this section now by telling us that the Antioch Christians demonstrated their, their love for the Lord, their faithfulness to the Lord by showing self-sacrificing love to other Christians. And so verses 27 to 30 say, now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we read of several prophets in the early church uh, whom God had gifted to edify the church and to encourage the church as they spoke things that had been revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. And biblical prophecy normally comes in two varieties, foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling is the kind we normally think of. It's prophecy that speaks a God-given message to a group of people about something that's going to happen in the future, foretelling prophecy. And the other kind is forth-telling, which is speaking a God-given message of encouragement and truth to a person or to a group of people right now in the present. Well, here, this Christian prophet named Agabus foretold a future prophecy given to him by God. The Holy Spirit prompted him to tell the Antioch Christians that a great famine was coming over all the ancient world. And then in parentheses, the author Luke notes that this prophecy was fulfilled during the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius. And this is just a cool little historical fact. According to non-Christian writers, like Josephus, from that time period, around the year 45 AD, there was a number of terrible famines that hit the Roman Empire not long after Agabus gave this prophecy. And in addition to the, this is, this is what's neat, in addition to this fulfilled prophecy, what's notable here is the way in which the Antioch Christians responded to the prophecy. So verse 29 says that they determined together to help other Christians in other parts of the empire who would be morally, more severely affected by the great famine. You hear that? They hear this, they hear a prophecy, it's going to get really bad. And so they don't say, you guys, let's get everything in the storehouses, come on. They're like, let's, get, let's give money to others so that they're taken care of, where, where their, their needs are greater than ours. And these Antioch Christians were not only filled with faith to believe that this was going to happen, but they're filled with the, the compassion of the Holy Spirit for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And get this, think about who they're sending the money to. The Judeans, who, these were the same people who criticized Peter for letting Gentiles in the church. And so now the Gentiles are saying, we love you Judean brothers, and we're gonna take care of you. And they send them money. And they, they take care of them, and they know, that by God's grace, now these Gentile Christians up north and the Judean Christians in the south, they know that their race, their culture, no longer separates them in the house of God. 
but in Jesus Christ, we're one new body. We're a new man with Jesus as our head, made of many different parts from people from all nations. And additionally, obviously the Antioch Christians, in the face of this famine that was gonna hit them, they were filled with faith to trust God that he would take care of them too. Uh, That he would take care of them financially. And in doing so, I think the Antioch Christians set a good example for us of what it looks like to give to the Lord. And in verse 29, what does it say? It says, everyone in the church gave. So that, that means there was a unity here. The Christians were united. They were on mission together. They were united in their desire to give sacrificially to the Lord. And everyone gave. And that's our prayer for this body at Cedar Home, that all Christians would grow in their faith by giving sacrificially to God's church without grumbling. Why is that our desire? Because Jesus says that's what his desire is for us in the New Testament. And then verse 29 says that, what else does it say about how they gave? Everyone gave according to his ability. So there wasn't like a set amount, um, but everybody was still commanded to give. So how do we do that? It says, according to the measure God has given to us. And so, if, you know, what does the New Testament teach about this? Well, it says, it says give, set apart money. So, so in a planned way. So setting aside money for God as we receive money. The New Testament says we should give in a generous way. That's the word that we read uh, in 2 Corinthians, I think, 2 Corinthians 8. Meaning that we give more than merely whatever we can live without right? We don't say, well, well, what don't I need? I guess I can give that to the Lord. That's not the way we give. We give in a sacrificial way, which means it hurts a little bit, and it requires faith to give that amount, and we give without grumbling, meaning, man, if you're going to give, don't give and say, here, God. Say, God, this is my worship to you. That's how we give, and when the Christians in Antioch gave this way, it was a beautiful thing to take care of their brothers and sisters. They were living out 1 John three eighteen. They were not loving in mere words. Say, so we hope you guys are good in the, in the famine. They, they were loving in deed and in truth. That's what 1 John three eighteen says. And they collected their money. They sent it with Barnabas and Saul to, to give to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. This is kind of the first time we see that word elders pop up in the New Testament referring to the church. That was the leadership structure, just like we lead our church with elders. And what this reminds me of, though, is I was reading about this. It reminds me of how generously this church has given to our brothers and sisters in Christ in, like, Swaziland and in other parts of the world. Because I was thinking about, in Swaziland, they too, they were in a terrible drought, a famine. And Cedar Home, our church body rallied tens of thousands of dollars together to, to give to them for food and clothing and clean water to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and that sort of generous spirit is not only an evidence of God's grace for the Swazi Christians that they're pumped about, but it should also be an evidence of grace that we're pumped about because it means God's alive and working among us. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you for being the Lord's hands and feet to one another and to our brothers and sisters around the world. So this passage, what is it talking about? Courageous evangelism, 
spirit-filled encouragement and joyful generosity. That's what God was doing among these Antioch Christians for the glory of his name and for their joy. And as we enter this week, as we prepare in a few days to welcome hundreds and hundreds of people through our doors, potentially, with no tricks, just treats, let's pray that God would produce the exact same spiritual fruit among us as we reach people who may not like Jesus, may not like the church, but we're gonna love them. And we're gonna tell them about the good news of Jesus. And if you can't be here, then wherever you're at this week, chew on this and think about how this applies to where you're at. What are those cultural boundaries you can cross to share the love and encouragement of Jesus Christ with others? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word that you've given to us and just for the opportunities we have as your hands and feet to our community and to one another to show grace to each other and to be an encouragement to one another. Um, We pray that you would help us to do that. It's exciting to read about churches like Antioch and... and, um, what you were doing there, and you know what? We're also very thankful and excited about what you're doing in our church family and what you're uh, doing in our community. We're thankful for all the people who do love the Lord and are doing um, exciting things for Jesus uh, all around us, and we wanna be on board with that, and we wanna be part of that, and thank you for inviting us into that work. And God, we do thank you so much that we're saved by your grace through faith and not through our works, not by our works, And thank you that we get to rest now knowing that we don't have to work hard to try to get you to like us. Um, But that we just say, I can't add one iota to anything Jesus did, but I trust wholly in him and I wanna live a life that worships him and says, Jesus is the real deal and he's my only hope in life and in death. We pray this in your name, amen.